Thank you, Terry. Glad you're here. Um, <laughs> give you behind the scenes of what happens right before a service sometime. Uh, I'm a little scattered today. Uh, it was Amy's birthday yesterday, my oldest, right? So wonderful for her. And then it's Pastor Daniel and Holly's uh, final weekend here, final day with us. That's my youngest. And so it's a little bit where my heart's in these two different... Isn't it funny how you can be in two? One is so joyful and one is so, you know, just it pulls on your heart. And so it's kind of... It's just been a scattered weekend, and um, literally right when we're doing the greeting, um, Matt, uh, who helps with tech, walks up and he goes, hey, pastor, can you turn your mic on? So I go to turn it on. I'm like, Matt, if I was wearing it, I could turn it, turn it on. So I had to run out, put it on real quick, was hoping, Terry, you could stall long enough to get at, you're never at a loss for words, so I knew I was safe. And as soon as you did the 20 thing, I knew you were stuck and you'd be there for a little while. So, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so welcome this morning. Glad you're here. I'm going to receive our offering this morning. Um, I want to take a moment and just thank you for your faithfulness and your generosity. Last week, uh, we had planned it was invite someone to church with you week. And we had a lot of people who gave their hearts to the Lord um, last week, which was really cool in both services. And then I'll just tell you one quick story. Um, this Right behind this wall is kind of a get-ready room where all the folks that have something to do on the platform of the weekend, we meet there and we pray right before the start of the service. But when you pull into the building, if you've been here once or twice, you know where the main entrances are. But if it's your first time, there are so many doors on the building. You don't know where to go to. You're just not quite sure. And literally, I will position myself right here because inevitably, at least once, if not twice or three times, some newcomer will go to this door right here and try to open it, and then I'll open it up, and I don't tell them who I am unless they ask me. I just act like I'm an usher, and hey, what are you looking for? I'm looking for the main entrance. Well, you found the side of the building, but let me take you on a back tour. So I took this young couple uh, through the building last week and introduced myself, and they told me who they were, and they said, some friends invited us. It's our first time here. I said, I know. Um, I'm, I know it's your first time. I could tell by where you came in. And, Took him to the coffee bar and introduced him to a few people. And then afterwards, we had the food trucks out. And so usually after service, I get stuck down here. I'll have people come down to talk to me, and I'm you know, meeting people, or I'm praying. So it took me probably 30 or 35 minutes to get out there to where the food trucks were, and it was kind of ebbing at that point. But I saw that same couple that was their first time that I brought through the building. They were walking out, and I just stopped them. I said, did you have a great experience today? They said, uh, Pastor, you'll see us next week. And so just tell that story real quick. You know, you never know in your giving. Of course, we know it goes, obviously, uh, for things that we see around us. And it goes for things that the church does in missions. But it also does things where we reach people in our community. And I'm trying to give you tangible ways. When you allow us to buy meals for first-time visitors... You just never know who's going to show up, and you never know how they're going to get connected, and you never know that someone's going to find Jesus in a weekend. You never know that. So thank you for your faithfulness, and I would add this one last thing to that. is summertime, and I know summertime is travel time. Every church goes through it. Uh, pastors travel too. We've got Pastor Sabi. Listen to this. Pastor Sabi is in Australia meeting his parents from India who are visiting his brother that lives there. That's an all-over-the-place thing that they've come together. It's what happens here. We know what happens for everybody. But giving tends to, um, it tends to wane and ebb 
flow in the summertime, which makes it difficult to administrate a budget. I'll tell you the number one way you can help me. Uh, if you give online, if you use the app or you give through the website, there is a box you can check for recurring giving, which just does it automatic. And if you're in a position to just simply do that so that when you leave, it still gets done. I, I told someone last night, it's the equivalent of like if your boss went on vacation and forgot to pay you for two or three weeks. What would you do? Right? You have to figure it out. And of course we do that. But man, is there a way around that? Recurring giving makes that thing so easy. We use it. I would encourage you to do the same thing. Um, but either way, man, thank you just for your faithfulness and for allowing us the opportunity to do outreach. So let me pray. Father, we want to worship you with our tithe and offering. Father, you have been so good to us. You have blessed us in so many ways. Time, talent, and treasure. And it's an honor to give the first part back to you. It belongs to you. It really belongs to you. And so it's our joy. God, we don't, uh, we don't want to do it with a heart that's ugly or that is, is fussing. And In fact, that's not the kind of money you want. You want a cheerful giver. You want someone who's purposed in their heart to do it because they do what is unto you. And so, Lord, I just pray that this offering would come from a blessed heart, Father God, and would go to be a blessing to people who need it, to ministries, to opportunities, to things that you want us to say yes to. Lord, we love you so much, and I'm so thankful. And I also want to pray real quick. If you're sitting out there and you hear me say those words and you think, Pastor, I wish I could do something. I wish I could be a part of it. I wish I, wish I could support what the Lord is doing here. But then this is what I want to pray for you. I want to pray that the Lord would bless you so that you could give, but I need to add a caveat to it. God gives seed to sowers. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians. And when we get seed, if our habit is to eat all of our seed and never sow any, then there's never anything left to give away. So I pray that the Lord would bless you, but I pray that he would also give you the wisdom to know you don't consume all of it, you sow some of it. And let it be a blessing. And Father, I thank you for this, and I give you praise now in your name. Amen. Amen. We're in a series called Flawed Heroes. And if this is your first week in here, let me explain the title. We're not looking for the worst people in the Bible. Here's the premise. Ultimately, we think that there's only one who's perfect, and that's Jesus. And so when you read your Bible, it's clear. Everyone else besides Jesus had flaws in their life. Everyone else sinned. Everyone else made mistakes. Only Jesus was perfect. What makes that wonderful is that if you are here today and you want to do something for God, you want to do something in the kingdom, if you, if you love the Lord and yet you find flaws in your life, there's hope for you because it makes you like everybody else and people that did great things for God had flaws in their lives. So it should give us hope. And so we're looking at different people who did great things for God or who made mistakes, but yet they were in the Bible. Today is, boy, you talk about an obscure person that I picked for today. And I hope that I can pull this all together. It really is. Uh, when we were getting ready, someone mentioned, Pastor, it's like having three, you could have made three different series out of your message. Don't worry, it's not three hour long. <laughs> Message. I will make this as quick as possible, and maybe I will go back and do some additional things on this. But uh, I want to talk about, I left off last week talking about the presence of God and said, if you want to know more about the presence of God, come back this week. So I want to talk about the presence of God, but the Lord took me in a different way as I was studying this week, and so I want to talk about the awe of God. The awesome, the awful, just the awe-inspiring 
Something that we don't hear much about in church anymore. I think in the last 25 years, uh, God has become very, I think people would use the word personal. He's a personal God to me. He wants to bless me and he wants to take care of me and he wants to make sure that I'm happy and he wants to make sure that I have a plan and a purpose for my life and that plan and purpose is filled out and it's done. And I believe that that's true, but if that's all we make of God, really what we make God is just simply a best friend and we somehow lose the awe and the majesty of who God is. And so today I hope to take you into that, into that place. So our flawed hero is a man named Uzzah. Now how many of you, be honest, you've never heard that name before in the Bible? Raise your hand. Yeah, how many of you are lying and you never heard that lane before? Yeah, okay, that's many of us. He is obscure. He's mentioned one time, and his story, on the surface, I had people get upset with me last night with the story. Now, I didn't write the story, okay? Remember that. I'm a messenger of the story. I did not write the story. It is a, on the surface, it seems so, it seems like God is arbitrary, like God got angry for no reason at all. So give me a chance to explain the message to you, but let me read Uzzah's story to you. Uh, we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. I'll explain that if you don't know, but this is the story. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15 begins this way. Uh, then King David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel. Look how many people he gathered together. 30,000 men in all. And he led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the ark of God. All right, now let me stop and explain where the ark has been and what the ark is. Way back when Moses took the children of Israel out of Egypt, right? God gave Moses a plan for what they called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was mobile. It actually is based on uh, a tabernacle that's in heaven is what God said and that Moses was to build a copy of it here on the earth, and they called it the tabernacle, not the temple, because the tabernacle, Israel moved around a lot then when they were in the desert. Remember, 40 years, and they would move the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, you had the outer court, you had the inner court, and then you had the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, some of you are like, I saw Indiana Jones and in I know all about it. You don't know anything about it if that's your definition of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was made out of, God gave them the precise size for it, uh, had them cover it with real thick gold, put four rings on the outside of the Ark of the Covenant, and the priests and the priests only would take gold poles, slide it through the rings, and they would carry the ark on their shoulders. And the priests were the only ones who were allowed to do this. And it represented that the priests were especially called by the Lord to minister unto him and to show the people. And it was a respectful thing. God didn't want the people to see this as some common and ordinary thing. He wanted the people to see the awe and the respect. Now, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? There were three things. Uh, one was the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses. One was a pot of manna. You remember when they were in the desert and they needed food and God rained down. It's what the angels eat. They saved a pot of manna and they put it inside the Ark of the Covenant. And then Aaron had a staff. And that staff was nothing more than a stick broken from a tree, but it continued to bud as though God were alive. And it kind of gave him authority. So they put that staff inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And then on the top of the Ark of the Covenant were two angels called cherubim. Now, not those little ones that shoot arrows on Valentine's Day. These are awesome, fearful. They wait in the presence of the Lord at his beckon to do what he tells them to do. And the way that God told them to form the angels 
on the Ark of the Covenant was that they were facing each other, kneeling with their wings pointed towards each other, looking like they were ready for any instruction that God might give them. And that was called the mercy seat. Isn't that interesting? Not the judgment seat, not the hate seat, not the get even seat, the mercy seat. And God's presence would dwell between the cherubim above the mercy seat. It was already giving us signals of how God was going to treat mankind. And so that was kept in the holy of holies. And Israel, from time to time, when they had to move, would carry the ark. Uh, when they crossed the Jordan River to go into the promised land, they had the ark with them. And as soon as the priests stepped into the water with the ark, the Jordan River dried up and they were able to all cross the Jordan River. And as soon as the priests stepped out, then the water began to flow again. When they went to Jericho and they marched around the walls of Jericho seven times and then blew the trumpet, they had the ark with them. And the people saw it represented that God's presence was with them. And several other times it was carried into battle. And then they made a mistake. Israel began to see and look at the ark as though it was the ark that was special and not the presence of God that was special. So one time they went out to battle the Philistines and they didn't ask permission from God whether or not they should go in battle. All they did was take the ark with them, thinking that if we have the ark, God is bound to do what we tell him to do. And they lost the battle, and the Philistines captured the ark, which represented the presence of God. And so they took the ark, and they put it in with their god, Dagon. And the very next day, someone went in to check, and their god was laying face down in front of the ark. So they set him upright, and then the next day they went in, and both of his arms and legs were broken off, and he was laying prostrate in front of the ark. Funny. But they began to move the ark from town to town because it caused fear. In the, it wasn't for the Philistines, it was for Israel. And the weirdest thing began to happen as they moved it from town to town. They'd bring it to a town, and the people in that town would break out in tumors. And if you study it, um, it wasn't just like a tumor you'd find on your arm or your neck. Um, so I'm trying, a politically correct way would say, these people would need preparation H. Is that gross? I didn't write it. Remember that. I did not write this story. So think about that. The whole town gets infected with that. You'd want that thing out of there, yes or no? The other thing that would happen is rats and mice carrying disease would suddenly invade a town where the ark was. They couldn't wait to give it to another town. Hey, we got this deal for you. And so they were giving it to all these Philistine towns, and everywhere the ark went, man, it would just wreak havoc. So finally the Philistines contacted a Jewish person, they said, would you please just take this off of our hand? So it ended up at a guy's house. Years and years and years had gone by, and people had forgotten the ark. King David's now king, but remember, King David didn't build the temple. Solomon built the temple. And someone reminds David that the ark of the covenant is at a house not too far outside of Jerusalem, and so David reads about the ark and all that it meant. And David loves God with all of his heart. So then David gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's army, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the ark on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house. It had been at Abinadab's house for 20 some odd years. I think Abinadab had probably, they say familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Contempt. 
So it had been in like his living room and he was taking care of it, but they'd become casual with it. And they had forgotten even how it was supposed to be carried. So David brings 30,000 people to celebrate returning the ark, but God had prescribed how the ark was supposed to be carried. What did I tell you? Who can carry the ark? And how did they have to carry it? Golden poles through the rings. Nobody could lay a hand on the ark. It was to represent the holiness of God. Only once a year, once the temple was built in the Holy of Holies, could the priest go in and sprinkle the sacrifice on the mercy seat. Only once a year. This was a very uncommon thing, and they were treating it as though it were common. So David, thinking that he's doing the right thing, he placed the ark of God on a new cart. Can you imagine David like, no, an old cart will not do. Let's get a new cart. This is God we're talking about. Get the Cadillac model, not that Chevy. Amen. Oh, that's right. Terry drives a Cadillac. <laughs> so they brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. And Abinadab had two sons. One was named Uzzah and one was named Ahio. Ahio was actually the one who took care of the ark. So Abinadab's sons were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. They're bringing it back into the city of David in Jerusalem. Ahio walked in front of the ark, ministering to the Lord. Now look at this. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. They're singing songs, 30,000 people. They're playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets. and cymb- How many of you know this is a noisy, boisterous, loud, joyful celebration? And they think they're doing it the right way. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. And then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him dead because of this. Now on the surface, yes or no, does that seem so unfair? It seems almost arbitrary. It's almost like, man, can you trust this God? I mean, does he just get mad for no reason? What's going on here? And yet... The Lord had prescribed a thousand years ago how they were to respect this ark and treat this ark because it represented his presence. They lost the ark in battle because they didn't respect God. When they finally get it back, they don't do with it what they're supposed to do. David wants to bring it back to Jerusalem, but he's not doing it the right way, even though he's doing it in his mind the right way. And then this Uzzah who's become so familiar with the ark because it's been in his house for all of these years, the oxen stumble, it must have slid a little bit. And so he reaches his hand up to steady it, but he's not supposed to touch it. And it's not even supposed to be carried that way. And as soon as he does, God strikes him dead. So here's the reaction. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. I mean, he didn't even have a chance to say, oops. It's like (laughs) over with. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. So David renames that town Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah. For all of eternity, the town is named. Here's the place that Uzzah died. That is not like, you'd want a town named after you for something better. than. And it is still called that today. David was now afraid of the Lord and he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it into the house of a man named Obed-Edom of Gath. He was a good man, an honest man, and this was close by when it happened. So they brought the ark to his house. The ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Now notice, not just Obed-Edom, but his entire household. The word household means all of your family. 
I'm going to show you something in studying. I'd never seen it before, and it's really awesome, and maybe it'll mean something to you today. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of God had gone six steps, so now he has the priests. They're carrying it with the poles. But here's what David is doing. They've got to go about between 14 and 15 miles. So they take one, two, three, four, five, six steps and stop, right? Get this. They're carrying the ark of the Lord. They're going, David sacrifices a bull and a fattened calf after every six. Do you know how long it took to go 15 miles? Do you know how much sacrifice went? And so we could read that today in our American way and think, wow, how could they treat animals that way? But you've got to recognize what's really going on here is they are bringing honor back to the awesomeness of God. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing his priestly garments. So David and all the people of Israel brought the ark up of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of the shofar, the ram's horn, before the people and returned it to the city of David. And then when Solomon built the temple, they put it in the Holy of Holies. So let me quickly talk about Uzzah's mistake. Uzzah's mistake was that he treated what was holy as though it were common, ordinary. He profaned the sacred. I know that's hard to get out of that story. You think he just did something that was normal, that you might do the same thing, that the oxen stumbled, the ark of God is about to fall. But I would point out to you, if God said you do it a certain way, isn't God able to keep the thing from falling? And if it did fall, isn't God able to do anything? And somehow they had lost the awesomeness of God and began to treat his awesomeness as though it were nothing more than common, that they could handle the holy in a profane way. The presence of God, listen to me, is to be honored, respected, and held in awe. And I would tell you the one place today where it's probably more commonly treated rather than treated with respect is in church. Worship is something that we choose, I may or I may not. Do you know that the Bible says God is enthroned on what? The praises of his people. Well, I don't like the song. I don't like the lights. I don't like the smoke. I don't like the singer. I don't like the temple. I don't like... Because we've made God all about what you like. What is God like? God likes praise. God likes his people to be in awe. Do you know the word awesome that we use for everything today? My pizza is awesome. <laughs> Pastor Terry's car is awesome. Pastor John's shoes, those are awesome. <laughs> you notice, Brandon? You, do you notice? Yeah, I got them. His dad had a pair. His dad wouldn't tell me what they were. Brandon had to sneak and find out what they were. I went and bought them. Boom, tell your dad I got the shoes. I don't know why I told that story just now. They're awesome. Here's the problem with it. Do you know that the word awesome was invented to talk about God and nothing else? They had no word to describe what it was like when he showed up. And so the word, it means awful. And I don't mean awful like a terrible thing happened. But when you're really in the presence of God, it's not like, woo. It, it's like, woo. It's like, get on your face. Get on your knees. Like, God is here. 
Like I'm not going to go do something else during this time. God has my heart. God has my attention. He is awful. He is awesome. He is awe-inspiring. And somehow we've lowered that to it. Does it fit my tempo? Does it fit my, my, my choice? Does it fit my comfortability? And we've taken what's supposed to be so sacred and so awesome. We're supposed to walk into here. We come into his presence with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. And we decide before we walk in here, I got everything else that I'm thinking about. I just wish this part of the service would get over. Who am I talking to? Nobody brave enough to raise a hand right now. Becoming casual with the presence is becoming disrespectful towards the presence of God. Can I say this? We are losing the sense of awe, respect, and wonder in church and in our now lives. Nothing is special. Nothing is sacred. Nothing is really awesome. If everything is awesome, then nothing is awesome. Somehow we have, I hate the word dumbed down because I don't think that's what happened, but we churched it down so that we could lower the threshold so that whosoever will may come. And that's awesome, but they should come into the mighty power and presence of God. They should walk in and go, something is different in this place. Man, the music's great. Man, the preaching's great, but that's not it. They've got God in that place right there. Wouldn't you love it if people drove by this building and were drawn into it, and when they walked in, no one said anything, but boom, God says something to them. God delivered them. God touched them. God healed them. Wouldn't that be... What if, what if we came with such awe and expectation in our heart that God was going to do something incredible? So I don't know how to explain this. This is why it might be worthy of a series to talk about how do you replace the awe back into the church? How do we replace it back into our lives? A lot of us came from churches that thought it was through liturgy. Get a big pointy hat, get some incense, get some holy water, and that's awe. No, that is stuff. Because I know plenty of people who do that who don't experience awe. They experience stuff. And so then we make it where, okay, let's be real informal and people can come in. There's somewhere in between the awesomeness of God has to be cherished and lifted back up and respected and treated a particular way. I'm asking the Lord. I'm trying to figure that out. I, it's my job to reinstitute. What would that look like? What would that be like? How would we respect that? How would we encourage that? All right, let me move on to Obed-Edom and the blessing. Verse 10 through 12. Pull that up for me real quick. Look at Obed-Edom's blessing. So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. So for three months... We don't know how old Obed-Edom is, but he's an adult and he's having children already. So let's say somewhere between 30 and 40 or 50, somewhere in that age right there. We don't know how old he is, but we know he's worked really hard all his life. But in 30 days, he's been blessed more by God than in any other time in his life. This is like his, <laughs> everything that, that he has worked hard for, 
pales in comparison to the blessing of God. So I wrote it this way. One day of God's favor is better than a lifetime of your labor. Dude, you can work hard your whole life, and I think working hard is a good quality to have. I think one of the things that Americans are still known for is that we are hardworking people. We take less vacations than anybody else. I don't think that's necessarily good, but we are hardworking people. And yet I would say to you, as hard as you're working, it doesn't come close to one day of God's favor in your life. God can open doors that your labor can never open. God can multiply your bank account that all of your knowledge, wisdom, and understanding could never get you to. God could cause people to like you. <laughs> that you've been trying forever. And they just don't like you. You can't figure it out. Three months of blessing was greater than his entire lifetime. Now, I read this this week, and I wrote this down. If you knew this, I congratulate you. I have read the Bible through and through so many times. I miss this. I miss this. I knew that after they took the ark from Obed-Edom's house, later on in life, Obed-Edom quit being a farmer, and when they built the temple, he moved to Jerusalem so that he could be a doorkeeper in the temple. He was so impressed by the presence of God and what the ark did that he quit his job, moved to Jerusalem when they built the temple. He couldn't, only the high priest could go in once a year to see the ark, but he could get close. So he would open the door and look in. <laughs> Close the door. So I knew that about him. I knew. He's the one who wrote, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. He's the one who wrote that. But remember it said that God blessed him and his entire household? Okay. First Chronicles 26, 4 through 6. Okay, listen to this. Just listen. Lists Obed-Edom, the name of his sons, and their grandsons. And it lists the dad, the sons, and the grandsons all as gatekeepers in God's temple. Listen to this. Obed-Edom had 62 strong male heirs, and it appears that all were faithful to the Lord and served God in vocational ministry. The ark of the Lord in 60 days changed the entire first, second, and third generation of this man's life. What would the presence of God do if it ever was elevated back to the place where we experience? Could God do more in our lives in two hours than we can do coming to church for 52 weekends a year. I wonder how many promises that we're praying for for our sons and daughters and grandchildren and hoping. Can I just tell you truth? <laughs> Dude, I've done this for 36 or 7 years. Pastor Terry, how long have you preached? Over 50? Almost 50 years. So listen, Terry could put his messages, I'll put mine with his all of our messages together, truthfully, are really not going to change. The only thing that we're hoping for is that something of the Holy Spirit will get through. Because the best we can offer you, Steve, is secondhand information from God. And God doesn't want you to have just secondhand. I mean, our job is to instruct in the Word. And I think we do that well. And I think we can whet your appetite. But if all you're doing is listening to us to figure out who God is, you're missing the point entirely. You're supposed to figure out who God is. You're supposed to experience God. You're supposed to know what the presence of the Lord is like. 
And that doesn't eliminate the necessity of instruction in the word. That's what we're doing, right? It whets appetites. We do this together. But you're supposed to become hungry for the presence of the Lord. And we're hoping we'll bring our children or we'll bring our grandchildren. Man, I hope this is really going to make a difference in their life. Can I tell you what's going to make a difference in their life? They really have to touch who Jesus is. They've got to touch the presence of God. Church will not change anything for anybody. The church can be the place where you experience God. Church can be the place where his presence is manifest and manifold and awesome. I'm not downing church. I love church. The Bible says it's the hope of the world. But I think, like, when we consider how many young people are leaving, okay, here's my youth pastors over here, and I know they'll agree with me in this. Um, When we consider how many people leave church today, from the time they graduate till they move into whatever they're going to do in college or in, in business, whatever that's going to be, there's a huge gap, uh, Ari and Kayla, in how many people stay. And you guys are doing a tremendous job. You, we talked about that just two days ago. You really are doing a great job. But why on a whole, listen to this, we spent more money in the last 40 years on youth ministry, hiring pastors who are just for youth, camps just for youth, youth mission trips that are just for youth, everything just for youth, and to have more people leave when they graduate high school. What is that? I think we've introduced an idea of all of these fun things are great, but they didn't really experience the power of God in them because the thing that holds a person throughout their life is the experience with God, not I went to a camp. Now, if you experience God at the camp, then that mattered. If you experience God on a mission trip, then that mattered. But we think, hey, we'll teach them how to do games and we'll do the fun things. And there's a place for that. But unless they experience God, why? Why? Why hang around? If we're going to try to outdo the world, the church can't outdo. Dude, we can do a few fun games out there, but we're not Elitches. Yes or no? But Elon just can't offer what we can, which is that the presence of God can touch you and fulfill everything inside of you and give you the reason why you exist on this earth right now. That makes sense. Um, so maybe it is, again, maybe it's, a, maybe it's worthy of a whole, a whole series with it. Let me finish with this. Uh, the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. Those were Jesus' famous words. I'm going to read them to you. Uh, Jesus is talking, uh, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. How many of you have heard that verse before? Of course. Here's the problem. We're Western believers and we're missing. So now when you hear Jesus say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that's exactly what he means. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But he's actually talking to a Jewish audience 2,000 years ago, yes or no? So there is an understanding here that's missing, and it has to do with the tabernacle and the temple. So I want to point this out to you. So uh, pull this up for me, would you? Um, Either one of them. Okay, this is Moses' tabernacle. It's designed from a pattern in heaven, It was portable because they moved around the desert for 40 years. And when they built the temple, the temple was built on similar dimensions to this. 
Okay, so on the right-hand side, uh, between the two lines is the word what? Gate. gate. Enter his gate with? Okay, then you see the word holy place. Okay, that is the inner court. So the outer court, you see it in between the laver and the bronze altar? That's the outer court. The inner court is where the altar of incense is, the table of showbread, uh, the, the menorah. That's the second level. And then the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And what, what blocked the Ark of the Covenant from um, the inner uh, court was a, a huge tapestry. Sometime I'll teach you what was on the tapestry because that's really interesting too. But when Jesus died on the cross... He uttered these words, it is finished. And then what separated God's presence from the rest of humanity was this curtain. Does anybody remember what happened to the curtain when Jesus said it's finished? It tore from top to bottom is what the Bible says. Not from bottom to top as though God himself reached down and tore it open. And forever we now can enter the presence of God or his spirit can enter us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Here's what's interesting. Pull that back up for me real quick. Um, this is just another picture. The outer court, the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies. Okay, so what Jewish people would have called the outer court was the way. What they called the inner court was the truth. And what they called the Holy of Holies is the life. So when Jesus goes, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, you know, everything in the Old Testament is actually written about Jesus. Do you know that? Amen. It's all a type and a shadow, and it's all about him. Jesus said this in John 6. You search the scriptures because in them you think you find life, but these scriptures testify to me, and you won't come to me and get the life that you're looking for. So he's telling Israel at the time, you think the temple, you think that the, the ark, you think that that's what it's all about. All those things are pointing a picture to me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and actually I am the life that dwells inside of the Holy of Holies. And when he gave his life, boom, the sacrifice is made and now. And that's wonderful because the whole world can touch it, but the downside is that somehow it becomes normal and not supernatural. How does the church return the supernatural to that? Not so that we're removed from it, but so that it's so respectful. Does that make sense? So God's trying to do something in me, and I don't know what it is exactly, and I don't know how to go about this. So maybe pray for me this week. But I think something that would be so cool in our church is that if we could figure out how to put the awe back into this so that when people walked in, it was like, wow, God is in this place. Man, what could happen? What could happen? I think that's as far as I want to go. That's enough. Maybe too much. Um, can my senior team join me up here real quick? And then, uh, Dad, if you want to join us, and Mom, if you want to join us up here, come on up. Um, and Daniel and Holly, make your way up here. And really, any other pastor that's in here that would like to come and pray with us is welcome to join us.
Okay. Did a lot of crying last night, so I'm hoping um, I can do this. <laughs> this is my beloved son that I love. And with him, I'm really well pleased. And this is his beautiful wife that God gave. And together, they're a powerful team. And we want to thank you publicly for all the ministry that you've done in the church. Ministry is one of those funny things. You never know how much you're helping somebody till you leave. And then they say, you made such a difference in my life. Yeah. <laughs> you guys have made such a difference in the life of this church. Yeah. Yeah. It won't be the same without you. We bless you as you set out on this new journey together. And Daniel and Holly, I pray that your marriage, you two will become one as never before. That you will know the goodness of the Lord in your marriage. You will cling to each other. Holly, cling to your husband. Daniel, cling to your wife. And the two of you to take care of his bride. Son, take care of your bride. I pray for Malachi. And Lucy and Della. Bless this family, Lord. Yes. Protect these children. God, let them find a good church. Yeah. A church that will love them and shepherd them and keep them. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. A church that the children will experience the awe of God. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That they'll never walk away, Lord. Yeah. God, thank you for this great day. It's a great day. You're doing a great thing. And we receive your work. And we receive what you're doing, Lord God. And so prepare the way for them, Lord God. Bless their finances. Bless their health. Bless their peace. Lord, let this just be the most marvelous time that they've ever, ever experienced together, Lord. Go before them. Lord, we release them without any hooks in them. And in fact... We send you out with our blessing. Amen. Go and do all that God has called you to do. One day of his favor. It's worth a lifetime of our labor. So may the favor of God go before you and open doors for you. And may you be in awe as you see this happen. We bless you and we love you. We say goodbye to you for now. And we thank the Lord in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Amen. Thank you.